We are so excited to have back on the show former Major League catcher with the Montreal Expos, the Detroit Tigers, the Miami Marlins, and current sports that Blue Jays analyst Joe Siddle. Welcome back to the Walk Off. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Happy off season. This is a fun time of year for me. We go at it pretty good for six or seven months, and then we get to lay low and listen to the fans for a few months. That's right. <laughs> and for you- signings. And that's track right. Isn't that the case? <laughs> Holy. Um, congrats, by the way, on your first full season in the booth. It was really fun listening to you all year long, man. Well done. Thanks. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was nice to get back in there. You know, when I started on radio with Jerry 10 years ago, I was doing the radio full time and I would fill in on occasion when Tabby would be away. So I was able to get my feet wet a little bit throughout the the time I was on radio, then, of course, moving to the TV side full time, the need wasn't there as much. But, uh, yes, it was uh, nice to get back in there. It would be much the same this year. And I think Buck's still up to doing his workload like he did last year. So we're going to share it. And uh, what better thing to do than share the booth with uh, Mr. Shulman, the best there is. Couldn't agree more with that. How much does your day-to-day change going from Blue Jays Central with Jamie Campbell to just being in the booth with Buck and Dan and and kind of uh, following the team around? A very common question I get from people. First one is usually, what do you like better? But the second one is what you just said. It's the actual, the day, the routine. And I would say for the broadcast, the game broadcast, when I'm working in the booth, it's just so much more preparation. I don't want to say I don't prepare for the other because, you know, I do. But when you're in the broadcast booth, you're doing a lot more on the other team. I'm focusing some a lot more attention on the other team, a lot, not just the team, but the individual players. And we listen to their manager speak more intently and talking to him before the game in the afternoon, trying to get a feel for the club, what they're doing lately, who's hot, who's not. So you're doing all that kinds of stuff kind of have to have a uh, some sort of a pulse on each hitter. The situation might be coming up. Do you pitch this guy right here? You know, Dan might pose that question to me, and I might have to know or have some quick notes where I've done some homework on guys where, you know, this is a guy that you can get to chase in this situation. I say you pitch to him, and maybe you get him to chase and go after the next guy too. Those sorts of things. Or it's a guy that's red hot. I wouldn't let him hurt me right now. So those are things that can happen. That's why you have to have a pulse on almost every individual player. Whereas with Blue Jays Central, you know, Jamie and I will have a half hour show there where we have probably three chats and we'll discuss the topics with our producer. We'll go over things. There might be something I want to demo. Could be anything like that. But there's basically three specific chats that we do. And then during the game, we come in and chime in. And then, of course, post game is just reacting to what happens. So I would say the preparation is very different. But there are times, I mean, on Blue Jays Central, you know, going back and forth with emails and texts with my producer all day. We could, I could, I don't know how much time I put into maybe a two minute and 20 second chat, right? You, and especially <laughs> if it, part of it has to do with a lot of the video that we're showing, or if it is one of those demos that I'm doing. I can imagine over the last 10 years, since you started uh, your color commentary and play by play in on the radio, has it shifted substantially? Have you noticed a pretty big difference uh, doing it on television now, 10 years later? Like, is there just more technology you're working with? Well, I think moving to TV first and foremost is just you're dealing with more. You've got a producer talking in your ear. You're going over your chats. You could be in mid-sentence and you hear something. Sometimes you hear them. Sometimes you don't. You have to just kind of keep rolling. You really learn to uh, adapt on the fly. And I think that's one thing I feel like maybe I've grown the most is sometimes Jamie and I, right, we're, we're done our chat, for example, but we might something may have happened where we're not going to the game yet. They're having some technical difficulties. we got to kill another minute, minute and a half. 
And I mean, there's nobody best in the business. I don't know if you ever catch sometimes when we're having to do that, but Jamie can absolutely <laughs> steer the ship and, you know, he'll just go a different angle and he knows that he can go anywhere with me. If he wants, wants to talk about the opposing pitcher or we have to touch on something, it might be a minute, it might be 45 seconds, but we can always go somewhere. And he's fantastic at doing that. But when I broke in and doing this guys, I, I had no broadcasting experience. So the best thing that I think ever happened to me, two things. One is that I broke in on the radio side because you don't have to worry about your camera presence, for example, and how you look and how you're saying things and your posture and how you're articulating things on the radio. Verbally, of course, it's important, but I also had one of the best in the business. Again, as you yeah. can tell, I've been pretty fortunate in my broadcasting career. I think of Jerry when I started on radio. I filled in in the booth. I had Buck. I go to Blue Jay Central, I got Jamie Campbell, and now I'm back in the booth and I'm with Dan Schulman. I, I don't know if you can name too many better broadcasters or people that do what they do as well as those guys. And I've been the beneficiary because I've been kind of mentored by each one of them. Tough That's not to agree with that. List. It is it's, really crazy. It's, it's <laughs> unbelievable. I am very, very grateful for that. Let me tell you. Are you ever still in touch with Jerry every once in a while? I am once in a while. You know, I think he's just enjoying his retirement. He likes to play bridge. His beautiful wife, Mary, is in contact with my wife once in a while. Did visit him one time at his place. That was last summer, the summer before during the season. So touch base with him. But yeah, he's sick. You know, Jerry, he's, um, Jerry likes to lay low. He's kind of under the radar. We don't see or hear too much from him. And, and you always know has been. I res- yeah. I respect that. I, that's the part you got to love about him. If he was in the room right now talking, guys, you know he would be all in and he's wonderful. But I think the way he's done it and he enjoys it is the way he's doing it. He's got a few beautiful grandchildren. So pretty fortunate man. So we'll get into some Blue Jays talk here. And I mean, it really has been about as quiet as it possibly can be for an off season we haven't watched anything happen uh they seem to be tied to numerous free agents and of course the big name everyone keeps bringing up is cody bellager and joe i'm curious on your view on this because all the talk is that he's going to get 200 million plus and it just seems like so much money for how much risk is attached to him. And listen, there's going to be risk with any guy you go out and get. And let's just take injuries right aside. When it comes to Bellinger, I just feel like there's a little bit added risk. Just when you look at his 2022 and 2021 season and it's, you know, he he finally did kind of pull it back together. But you're really betting a lot of money on a guy. Where are you at on Cody Bellinger? Do you think he's a good fit with the Jays? And could you stomach a $200-plus million contract? I don't think I can ever stomach a 10-year contract. I can't think <laughs> of too many good ones. Yeah. That's fair. It's, it's the way the industry is right now. And if you don't want Cody Bellinger in your lineup, you're crazy. And I'll say that you know maybe that shoulder injury had a bit of an impact, those two down seasons that he mm-hmm. had. And maybe last year was the start of him maybe coming out to, to having his better health. And I know the metrics aren't necessarily great in terms of the hard hit and exit velocity and all that stuff. But I would I don't want to say I'd take my chances, but you don't want to take your chances on 200 million plus. But if that's the going rate in the business now, if you want to add a difference-making left-handed bat, which is what he would be, I think, is there risk? Absolutely. And there's probably a little bit more risk because of that injury past. And are those numbers for real that he just put up this season? But I would love to see him in this Blue Jays lineup. I think the difference last year, and as good a job as Brandon Belt did adding a left-handed bat like that, 
I mean, he was a platoon type player, right? So he mm-hmm. wasn't really in there every day. I'm talking about a left-handed bat. I want in there every day that's an impact bat. And this is how I talked last winter, too. Ended up with like Kevin Kiermeyer and Brandon Belt, Dalton Varshow. None of them necessarily impact type bats to do damage in that lineup. And again, and I'll do respect, good season by Brandon Belt. But I think when you're talking about a Bellinger bat, that to me is much higher ceiling that can be a difference. But, you know, guys, we can talk about any free agent you want. I think the best free agent improvements they can get right there within their lineups. And you can look at Springer and Vladdy, and hopefully Bo continues to do his thing, and Kirk for me. Those are the guys that stand out. I mean, Vladdy alone, and I would never pin this whole thing on Vladdy, but if Vladdy was the Vladdy that I think he can be, and I know we mm-hmm. all remember 2021, and mm-hmm. some people question whether he'll ever do that again, I think he can. Like this guy, and we'll, we saw it last year in, at times where he might hit a couple of home runs over the course of a few days or have a two-home run game, and then everybody's ooh, just goo-goo-gaga over Vladdy again, and he's back, and I'm kind of watching myself, and I'd like to slow down swings and watch video and it's like, no, he's just so darn good that he can hit balls out of the park with his B and C swing. Not every human being can do that. So hopefully he gets his swing back right. And that makes all the difference in the world, let alone Kirk. We know his season didn't start well with the birth of his child, slow going. He just never really got going. And when you think of Springer too, guys, those three were three of your top four in the lineup the year before. When you have mm-hmm. regression from three of your top four guys, and I've always said, your best players need to be your best players. And it wasn't happening this year. So you can go a lot of places with free agents and who you want to add. And I, I hope they do. They need improvement from the guys they've got to. Couldn't agree more with that. And Joe, I'll be honest. We're very thankful and grateful that you give us the time of day. And it's it's become the point where whenever there's a catching question i'm like oh we'll write this down for the next time we get joe on and so i do want to talk alejandro kirk really quick here because we were talking internal improvements and that is the guy that i really do think we could see take another step forward after kind of a down year last season 25 years old i mean he's gained another year of experience he's never been more comfortable calling games with this pitching staff which is all big uh big mental stuff on his side. Danny Jansen's only fault last year was not being able to stay on the field. Do you see a scenario where this catching tandem can be one of the best in baseball like they were in 2022? I do, because I think they can both do that again. I was hesitant. I was reluctant to go there with these two as catchers a couple of years ago when they had that great season because I always felt like I would love to bring that veteran guy in. Now, there aren't many of those around anymore, like a good quality veteran receiver that receives the ball very well, that calls a good game, that does all those things. To me, the calling of the game is so big. And I know people say you don't need to do it much anymore because you've got your wristbands, you've got all your scouting reports and all that, but you still have to have a pulse of the game and what's happening within the game. I think the Blue Jays pitching staff has also improved so much and so dramatically. And first thing I look at with the Blue Jays, the position that they're in right now is look what they have done. They have built, and you can say they've built around Vladi and Bo and all this. No, they have built around starting pitching and veteran starting pitching, not young kids like they're, you know, Manova's coming up and he was going to be great. But I'm talking about signing Kevin Gosman as a free agent. Started way back with Ryu when they started getting on board mm-hmm. with this, but Gosman and now Bassett you get Jose Barrios and you extend him. These are three veteran guys. And you know what they do? They give you innings. 
And that to me is how you build your starting rotation. So that alone, I think has helped the catchers because I know as a catcher, when you're catching guys like that, that have a pretty good idea of what they want to do, it helps you and that can really make it work. And then you look at the bullpen and what they did. And they've, they've continued acquiring Swanson and then Jimmy Garcia when he came aboard and you've got Romano at the back end. Amazing what he does. It goes on and on and on. But that helps catchers too. So now to me, there's not that need for necessarily that what I used to think was a veteran type catcher that really knows how, how to handle a pitcher. That becomes important when you've got that middling pitcher on the mound that needs all the help you can get. That That's how you get Mitch White through a few innings or that type of thing when he was scuffing. Guys like that, the Bowden Francis's of the world. But I think where they're at now, there is no question. Danny, for me, does a fine job behind the plate. Can he better? Can he be a better receiver? Yes. Blocks pretty well, though. But if he just does his thing, I and mean, you know what his thing is, it's running into maybe 20 to 25 into the left field seats. That's what Danny Jansen needs to do. And if Alejandro Kirk can get back to being the hitter he was, he does a great job behind the plate. And I'll mm-hmm. be the first one. Early on, I wasn't a big fan of the way he went about his business, but you watch him more and more in each year. His ability to receive in this, I still call it the new style catching all. He is fantastic back there. So that part of it's great. He just, you need his bat. You need him to get that bat back. And I don't see why you can't. I think last year just seemed for me, as I said, he got to spring training late. He didn't, wasn't able to report to the WBC. And it's like he wasn't ready. And not only was he not ready, but he just never really got going. And then all throughout the season, wasn't necessarily fatigue so much as just it looked like he was by when I use the word cheat you hear me say that a lot when a hitter tries to cheat to get to a pitch it's because they just feel that the regular moves aren't going to get there so if you feel like you can't get to that fastball you cheat by starting earlier generally you pull off the baseball create a lot of bad habits and you start rushing all those words that hitters don't want to hear so he came on when we've seen him at his best he's such a good contact hitter good knowledge of the strike zone, gives you a tough, tough A-B. That's who Alejandro Kirk is, and that's who I think he can be again. We're not talking about a guy that needs to hit 25 home runs. That's not really his thing. His thing Mm -hmm. is tough A-B, draw some walks, singles and doubles, and keep it rolling. I think he can be that. So once those two get back to that, hopefully, that's the tandem that they had. And they complement each other pretty well as as Jano's got the power and and Kirk gets on base and and spreads the ball all over the field. I think that uh, I think that they're due for a pretty big step forward compared to the numbers that 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 tandem had in twenty twenty three. And I I, I want to talk a little bit of just garnering that experience of calling a game because I think it is an undervalued skill. And you touched on that a little bit when you're, when you're behind the plate, how long, and and we've seen a big influx in young catchers in the game over the last couple of years. How much experience does it take in your opinion to have that base of knowledge to call a good game? Takes time for sure. I I ended up playing parts of four major league seasons. Four of my seasons were in the major leagues for bits at a time. Did I get to the point that I could do that at the major league level? I was confident in it because of all the experiences I had in AAA. And of course, the AAA you get a lot of veteran pitchers as well. So that when I got those calls, and the reason I got those calls was because they had the confidence in me that that was the strength of my game. And that was the part that I I did really well and knew knew a lot about. So that worked for me. 
So do you, does the average catcher need more experience than that? Probably. But I think today too, when I look back at what I had to deal with, we didn't have all the information these guys had. We had information and we had scouting reports and we had, you know, different tips and tendencies of hitters. But now it's like there, where's their hot zone? Where's their cold zone? And what counts do they do this? We had basically, you know, does he like to swing at the first pitch? Can you get him to expand with two strikes? Different things like that. You know, ahead in the count, is he looking for this pitch or that pitch? It was pretty basic. Now it's like every count they've got where you should go and what zone <laughs> and what pitch and off-speed break pitch. So there's so much, and I'm sure that's why you see catchers looking at the wristbands because there's so much information. But I think with what they have done already, Jansen and Kirk, again, working with this pitching staff, I mean, if you catch Kevin Gosman somewhat regularly, if you catch Chris Bassett somewhat regularly, these guys, same with Brios, you get that feel. And when you're not catching, and that was – big thing for me because I was a backup most of my life was you're watching and you're in tune of all of the conversations because you might be in their next start and then you have that feel so you're not kind of way behind everything if, because you haven't caught that guy in a couple of starts so I think the more you catch them the more you get a feel for like a Gosman and we saw Kevin go through that adjustment himself of saying hey I got to throw some fastballs down in the zone a little bit more often to get these hitters to honor them so they don't just lay off the splitter that's a pitcher catcher thing that comes from the staff I'm sure it comes from everybody involved that's watching and noticing these things but to me as a catcher the catcher should have been the first one to notice that if I'm catching Kevin Gosman you see these tendencies going on these guys are swinging at these pitches down here boom the light bulb's got to go on right away and the quicker a catcher can do that the better you can quicker you can nip it in the butt and that has to be done in game and that's what the good catchers do and hopefully I think Kirk and Jano are getting to a point where they can identify things like that in game to make that adjustment pitchers can notice it but I've had so many pitchers that they might think they know what they see but as a catcher we're receiving the pitches we know what the ball is what the action in the ball is actually doing in the movement so we do have a better vibe and I've always said the pitching coach or manager should be asking the catcher in between innings how that pitcher's feeling <laughs> because you can ask the pitcher how he's feeling, but how is the stuff? The catcher knows I think better than anyone because we've got the front row seat. So speaking of the catcher knowing better than anyone, I do want to talk battery mates a little bit here and you say Kikuchi because Sorry, can I, I just think, jump in here, Scott, yeah. just because we have a listener question that just is like perfectly on the nose for this. So I want to get to this. Uh, so Jordan says, uh, I'm a catcher in my final year of high school. I constantly hear things about veteran catchers knowing, quote, how to be a catcher, knowing how to call a game. I know I'm wrong. Okay, I know. But I feel like I know how to be a catcher. So I guess my question is, what else is there to learn? Or is it just about getting better at everything I've been doing for the past seven seasons? So question from a young catcher there, Joe. Yeah, well, Jordan, I mean, I, I think the the things you need to learn as a catcher, are, if they just continue to go on and on, you can break the game down in so many facets from receiving to blocking to fielding bunts to catching pop-ups There's so many facets of the game. When you talk about calling a game, to me, it's probably the most critical because all of the things that I listed are physical traits that, of course, you have to be pretty adept at behind the plate to be a good catcher. But the difference maker for me is, number one, the catcher that has a pretty good knowledge of how to call a game, but 
With that, there are so many things. It's knowing your pitcher. It's getting to know your pitchers, not just on the field, but off the field. What type of personality? If I've got Scott on the mound, maybe he's a guy that when he's not spinning that slider real good, I got to get out there and I'm going to get in his face a little bit on my mound visit. I'm going to say, let's go get that thing on top and bury it down there. Whereas maybe Adam, I'm going to go back out to the mound. He's a different personality. So I might say, hey, look, the slider's spinning pretty good. Just try to get on top of it a little more, but you've thrown some really good ones. You understand the different personalities there. You have to be a psychologist as a catcher. Because what motivates one guy might be different than what motivates another guy. And those are the things I think, again, good catchers or that experience. Again, that word experience comes up. And I'm sure you guys would attest to it. I know mm -hmm. experience has helped me in my profession. It probably helps everybody in their profession. Jordan, as a high school catcher, more and more experience will help. But work at that. Work at getting to know your pitchers, understanding what their strengths and weaknesses are, and being able to couple that with your game plan to attack the hitters. That that is interesting about managing people, and that that really is mm. part of the catcher's job. And and I do want to springboard this into talking about Yusei Kikuchi because I want your opinion as a catcher. What did and and listen before I get into the catching side of thing, I do want to say like huge huge kudos to Yusei Kikuchi who not just rebounded but kind of resurrected his career last year he was the best season he's ever had on the mound and I want to know when you're a catcher and you're going into a new season with a pitcher you know has struggled last season and you know the psychology behind that and you know that he's like probably in his head way too much what do you do as a catcher to try and help a, a pitcher rebound from a bad season I think the first thing, first and foremost, with you say watching him pitch that year that he struggled, when I come to spring training, to me, he looks like a guy that needs that pat on the back, that needs to be told, your stuff is really good. Let's be aggressive. Trust your pitches because, trust me, they're really good. And we'll watch how the hitters react because the hitters' reactions will tell you everything. But that's the type of probably conversation that has to go on. I don't know him personally enough to say that's who he is. But that's what I saw when he was pitching out there. Now, when you watch people perform and they're failing a lot, none of us are probably going to look too confident out there. So in, <laughs> in his defense, I'm not saying that's his personality, but I think that's what he needed because you see the stuff. I mean, my goodness, 95 to 97, couple different breaking balls, had the splitter skill, all this stuff. It just didn't make sense that he didn't have a better year that year. And it looked like this year. I remember talking in spring training with Pete Walker early on. And the first thing he talked about was the pitch clock. He says, I think this might be the best thing for him because he can think less. And, you know, right. I kind of scoffed at it like, come on, Pete, like really? And um, as, you, as the course of the season kept going on and on, it's kind of like, you know, he might have been one of those perfect candidates because he appears to be a great athlete and in great shape. So that part of it's not the stamina wise, it's not going to bother him. But it seemed to allow him to work a little quicker. And that's another thing. Some guys work better when they're moving along. Some guys need a little time between pitches, whatever the case may be. Once again, as a catcher, you can help in that regard. Am I going to catch the pitch? Get it right back to him. Don't give him time to think about how he missed arm side with that fastball. Just put the next fingers down. So that can help. And I'm sure they've, they've worked on that. But I think the big thing with you, say, too, when you get you start having some success, that confidence comes along. And we saw him with that little swagger he's got when he strikes the guy out and he ends up with that pirouette up on his top toes. And it's <laughs> yeah. fun to watch. But 
it's it's the age old question, right? What comes first? And I, I think you have to find some success before you gain that confidence. And he just kept gaining more and more last year. Pete, his staff, his catchers, I think everyone contributed to help him and no more than you say himself to make the adjustments necessary. And he was just a different guy last year. Do you think it's repeatable? Do you think we see the Yusei Kikuchi from 2023 again this season? I don't see why not. And I think the biggest factor for me too, and I'm a big proponent of using his fastball. I was preaching it a lot there a couple of years ago. And it's not that like you just throw all fastballs, but I think what happens is he got so dependent on his secondary stuff and he still can, he'll still go to that slider more than probably needs to sometimes. But if you get a little bit too predictable, now you're facing good hitters. Now you're facing the Harpers and Sotos of the world. <laughs> You'll be facing Soto this year, both at the Rogers Center and Yankee Stadium, unfortunately. But those are the kinds of guys that you can't just keep going to it because now they're going to sit on it. Good hitters will sit on a pitch. So with your 96, 97 and that slider, and you had both breaking balls last year, the slower one, 83, 84, the harder one, 88, 89. But having the differences is one thing, but also just not getting so predictable. And I think that was the big thing for you, say. I felt that that was his biggest crutch. He always wanted to go to that slider. It was just the pitch to go to. And at times he could throw a decent one, but guys, I think Otani hit one out of No, that's Otani. But it's because I think you're almost anticipating. If you're anticipating a pitch, you get a better chance of having success against it. You're a really good hitter. And that's what really good hitters do. Okay, we're going to take a left turn here and talk something that the fan base is maybe a little upset with. But that said, the fan base also doesn't know the actual dynamics within the clubhouse. So the Jays coaching staff uh, underwent almost no changes, right? Outside of DeMarlo Hale returning to the fold. They're pretty much running back the coaching staff. And some fans are hot and cold on whether they think that's the right move. From a player's aspect... When you have a scenario like last season where maybe, you know, you underperform a little bit in the season and then also carry that into the playoffs and don't go where you want to go. Do you want to see a change within that clubhouse? I'm, I'm guessing it's scenario by scenario, but is there ever that feeling of like, oh, we're running it back again? Or is there more of a, no, we should have been able to do this. Give us another chance. Yeah, I've never been one to really look at coaches first. And I think in sports, especially in baseball, that's the first thing. And pitching staff does terribly. The pitching coach's job is in jeopardy. The hitting coach's job is in jeopardy when a team doesn't hit like they're supposed to. I cannot imagine that there was a complete 180 change of approach by the hitting staff last year compared to the year before when they were a top five offense in baseball. I know to a man, to a player, to a hitter, they're looking in the mirror because they have to be. If there is a team-wide approach. Now, this was really different last year because it was a team-wide power outage, basically. <laughs> and it was unpredictable. I didn't see it coming. I oh, did not see neither. it coming. <laughs> and I would think, well, wait a minute. You know, Guillermo was the hitting coach the year before. The same guys were around and it wasn't like this. So did they change their philosophy to be a bit of a different offense? Maybe, but I really think it's an individual thing. I think hitting coaches have 12 and 13 and 14 projects on their hand every year and more when guys get called up. 
And I think what they're dealing with with Matt Chapman is a little different than what they're dealing with with Vladdy, is a little different than what they're dealing with with Varsha. Every hitter to me is different. We can talk about some common denominators that a lot of good hitters do in terms of their moves and in terms of their approach. But I think for everyone, it's different. The way Matt Chapman gets ready to hit a baseball, his moves are different, especially than a left-handed hitter like a Varsho and all. But they have different things to work on. So what you need to work with Dalton Varsho on might be different than what Springer was having trouble with or whatever the case may be. So to me, those hitters, I'm sure, are all continuing to approach their coaches, uh, look at opposing pitchers, talk about game plans and how they're going to go about it but also with the mechanics of their swing. Now, do we wish we would have seen some changes throughout the course of the season? Absolutely. But I think one thing that people don't understand is, and I know because I went through it as a hitter and I tried a lot of things. That wasn't the strength of my game. And I knew that if I could hit better, I could have probably had a longer career. So I tried everything, trust me. But you can be told the right, right things. You can be talk about approach. But sometimes you just can't get your body to do the things that are necessary to do to make those proper moves to the baseball. Now, that's not the case in a lot of these guys, because most of the guys we're dealing with, they're major leaguers. These guys are major leaguers. These guys aren't on the brink. We're talking like Marshall and Chapman and Springer and Vladdy. These guys are major league hitters. And that's why they're still surviving in the major league level, because they're so darn talented. But it's just when they're not at their best, like I think Dalton Marshall can be a better hitter. He's just such a good athlete. But he's going to have to make some swing changes and we'll see if they happen. Is that up to the coaches? Yes, but it's also up to a hitter when you're home in the off season to kind of figure things out. These guys, it's not their first year playing baseball. So that's what I think about when I hear about all the coaching and coaches and, and that sort of stuff, not saying coaches aren't at fault because I'm sure they'll own it too. And they should, because when you're a coach, that's when your players aren't performing, it's a reflection of you. But I think the players, each and every one of them, have all individual things that they need to work on to try to correct their flaw because their flaws are all different. But it was very ironic that the power was down across the lineup. So that makes me wonder, was there maybe a little bit more of an emphasis on use in the middle of the field or going the other way or whatever the case may be? We heard different things throughout the course of the season. I think sometimes, too, if I can just add to this is that Fans sometimes hear about that, about coaches or from players about their approach. Now, I remember talking to Matt Chapman in spring training last year, and he was kind of playing with that little toe tap and what he was doing, a little bit of a change. He said, you know, I'm trying to get back to my power is like left center field to right center field. That's when I'm at my best and thinking more that way. And that's where I generally hit. Well, we know that the year before, pull power was his big thing. And back mm -hmm. when he was an all-star with the A's, he was using the field a little bit more. But we know what he likes to do when he hits for power. And we didn't see that last year. Was he, It just seemed like he was using the middle of the field maybe the other way a little bit more, and they weren't going out of the ballpark as much. Springer was the same thing. I think George Springer, I think, pull power. And I don't think we saw a lot of that last year. So he's a different case. Is it because he's getting a little bit older? Is the bat speed down a little bit? Was he thinking, oh, I just want to stay in the middle of the field and try to get more hits? Good contact hitter. But maybe because, and that could line up wide almost, because you're such good contact hitters, is that a good thing? Maybe maybe you're too good at contact hitters and you're rolling the ball over the shortstop. Would you be better off swinging and missing at that slider down and away, or whatever the case may be? So you know where I'm going here. Like every hitter's different in how you attack your weakness or what's your perceived weakness that season is going to be different than the next guy. But it's your job as a player, Matt Chapman. George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Alejandro Kirk, to figure it out.
So you talked Matt Chapman quite a bit here, and that springboards perfectly into this next question because I think the vacancy at the hot corner is probably the biggest question mark for the Blue Jays right now in this free agent offseason here. Uh, and I, I, I think the big question marks is that there are internal options, right? There are ways that they could fill third base internally, but... We watched this pitching staff, a staff that you mentioned is the backbone of what the Blue Jays have accomplished over the last year or two, exceed expectations in 2023. And I think it was maybe understated what having a vacuum like Matt Chapman at third base can do for a pitching staff. Do you look at the holes within this Blue Jays system right now? Would you be all right with a reunion an o- a- a- that you're probably going to overpay on with Matt Chapman? Or would you like to see the Blue Jays maybe go a little different direction, even though you are obviously probably going to take a step back defensively? Well, bringing Matt Chapman back obviously plugs a huge hole because you think of the holes they have to fill, right? You need an outfielder. Um, second base is a question mark. Third base is a question mark. And third base is a big one, right? Especially the mm-hmm. defense you talked about. Now, at the same time, you're talking about a lot of money again. Who knows where he'll end up? If he's going to be 150, 180, 200, wherever it goes. And that's a lot of money for a guy that we watched struggle a lot last year. As hard as he hits the baseball, there's a lot of swing and miss too. And that's mm-hmm. tough because the defense is probably not going to keep improving year over year as we move forward. And now you want to commit five and six years to a guy like that. That one's a tough one for me. That's why I still prefer to say maybe like, I mean, it's easy. It's not my money, but like a Bellinger and a JD Martinez, you're really helping your lineup out. You got an outfielder there now and you're, you're working second base and third base. Yes. With your Bizios and Espinals and maybe Barger Schneiders, whoever these guys Two holes is tough to fill in an infield. Mm-hmm. Like that's why one would be all right, and that's why the Chapman thing makes sense. You know, if you sign Chapman, then you just figure it out at second base. Remember, this season started with second base being kind of tryout camp. We saw Merrifield, we saw Biggio, Espinal, and that's the way it was going to be early on. And then Witt ended up basically winning that job because he was playing so well. So you could do that at one spot, but boy, that's tough to do that at two spots. And you've got that outfield spot, of course, that you have to fill as well. I'm sure they'll get very creative. We know this, guys. I can tell you the Blue Jays know this, too. So (laughs) they'll figure it out. And, I, you know, you talked earlier about the timing. And here we are in mid-December getting closer to late December. But that doesn't bother me a whole lot. To me, it's you just got to get it done before this offseason. We know everything was delayed, right, with the Otani thing and now the Yamamoto thing. Once that one goes down, I'm sure things will get moving. But timing doesn't bother me, and the fact that they haven't done anything doesn't bother me. They'll get it done. This is a team that knows they want to win right now. This is not about building for the next four and five and six years. It's about winning now, just like it was last year. And it's just really the unfortunate part is they really let some good, good pitching slip away because that's the year to that's the year to make a run when you're pitching as good as yeah. it was, and then and unfortunately the hitting wasn't. So 54 days. Till pitchers and catchers <laughs> report to spring training. Are you going to be in Florida for this year's spring training at all, Joe? I will. I'm down there every spring. Uh, Buck and I will split the games. We're probably doing uh, another was it 14, 15, 16 games. I'm sure it'll be on TV. We're looking forward, hopefully, to that. And that's the case. I know I'll be doing a handful of those, but I'm down there every day. So, yeah, looking forward to that. It's a great prep for me also. 
for the season, whether it's in the booth or Blue Jay Center, you know, I've always found being around that team in spring training is great, especially for the last three, four weeks to go into the season because that's uh, it's uh, pretty quaint down there, down to the complex and also at the games. You've got lots of good contact with players and coaches. And that's where we do most of our work. I mean, having conversations with hitters, with pitchers, with coaches, those are the, that's where we get a lot of our information. That's when I can see how Dalton Varsho is swinging the bat, but then I can actually go up there and talk to him and say, are you feeling this? What are you thinking? What are you working on? What are you trying to do? How are you going to combat that high fastball? So that's where a lot of our work gets done. It's just great to be down there and uh, no better place to be with spring baseball. That's for sure. Couldn't agree more. Looking back on your playing days, spring training, what was that experience like? I, I can imagine that it depends on where you're at in your career as to the amount of pressure and the and the overall, uh, you know, pressures and weight you put on yourself during spring. Yeah, I when I think when you just asked me that question, the first thing that came to my mind is I was very lucky as a catcher teams need catchers in spring training. And in those days, you'd have six and seven catchers. So as non-roster invitees, I got invited very early. It might have been after my second season in the minor leagues. I was in A-ball. And Dave Dombrowski called me at home, and he said, we'd like to invite you to spring training. And I'm thinking, like, major league spring training? It's like, yeah. So I go into <laughs> spring training. We're talking, like, with the Expos, Tim Wallach, Tim Raines, Andre Scalaraga, Gary Carter, all these guys just like, whoa, and I'm one of those. It was so awesome. So as a young player, I was very fortunate. I wasn't there on merit necessarily, although obviously I knew I could catch and handle myself, but you need extra catchers in spring training. Gary Carter wasn't going to catch six bullpens in a day, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, Mike Fitzgerald, some of the veteran guys, Ron Hassey. So I, I got to do a lot of the grunt work and I did it gladly, but that's what I remember because it was, it began a string of a lot of spring trainings at big league camps. And as young players, you don't get to go to big league camp too often. So I was invited a lot of times being a catcher, very fortunate. So we got a lot of great experiences. I was with the Expos coming up. And then by the time I left the Expos and went to the other teams, Detroit and the Marlins, I was well into my career. So I was going to big league camp with them too. So it's great. It's, um, it's the toughest part is being uh, from the North here and you're working out indoors. I remember, Things have changed a little bit since then, but, you know, I see all these beautiful facilities now where everybody, everything on social media looks so great in these <laughs> yeah. beautiful indoor batting cages and they're running and lifting weights. And I mean, I went to a gym and lifted weights, but I remember throwing in my garage, I would drape a big old flannel blanket of my mother's. I stole it from the upstairs linen closet and I tied a rope from one end to the other. I draped it over and I would literally throw a baseball as hard as I could into that. And I would throw for like 10, 15, 20 minutes. And I'd simulate long toss. That was my winter throwing program. I didn't have a facility to throw indoors. And then same thing with hitting. I'd put a ball on a tee and I'd hit into that thing. And sometimes the blanket would fall. And I remember taking out one of the windows in the cabinet in the garage one day. Those are things we did. But that's when you ask me about those memories, that's what I think of my days going back to Major League Spring trainings. And I wouldn't change them for anything. When the blanket falls, you counted a home run, right? That's a dinger. <laughs> That's probably because I hit about 250 balls off that thing. Yeah. Probably should have hit more. <laughs> uh, okay. Honestly, Joe, we could talk baseball with you all day long. So appreciate how generous you are with your time here. We will flip to uh listener questions here. If you got a few more minutes left. For sure. Okay. So I'll leave you with this last question before I go to Adam here. And I'm just curious because I fell for this last year. I predicted the Rays 
wouldn't make the playoffs. I said, this is the year they finally take that step backwards. And now here we are. We watch Tyler Glass now and Manuel Margot get traded to the Dodgers. I want to say this is the year they don't make the playoffs, but I keep getting pie in my face every time I do this. The Tampa Bay Rays, they're still going to be a pain in everyone's side, right? Don't don't get tricked. Don't get tricked. <laughs> I think they I think they are because we have to give them that respect because they keep doing it. And uh, yeah, they're doing it a different way. I think um, you know, they used to do it. We talked about pitching and defense so much with them. But then the offense kind of started coming along mm-hmm. over a number of years. But then now, you know, with the, with the issues still surrounding Wander Franco and you see Margot went in that trade to the Dodgers. So they're going to have to replace that somehow. But, you know, they're always going to find a way to pitch. It's a pitching factory down there and they just run them out there one after another after another. And I'm sure Blue Jays hitters are never going to like facing that team because of that. But, um, you know, if the offense takes a step back, that can be an issue for sure. Um, we always think pitching and defense, you know, with the Blue Jays this year can take you a lot of places, but got to hit too. I always said pitching and defense keeps you in games, but you still got to hit to win games. The 2023 Blue Jays proved that, eh, Joe? Mm, <laughs> ever. All right, my turn. All yours, Adam. Sorry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Usually you throw to me, so I was just, okay, that's all good. Um, okay, so I got two for you, Joe. Uh, first one, well, we got to the very first one. Uh, from Jordan but the next one comes from Bradley who says after seeing the kind of money the Blue Jays were able to pursue Shohei Otani with do you see the Jays as legit suitors on the Juan Soto sweepstakes next year why not right I mean um, again those (laughs) those contracts again are they're not great I mean even with the contracts they have right now like Everybody probably knew the George Springer contract wasn't going to end well. Um, hopefully it still goes well, but mm-hmm. usually the longer mm-hmm. term contracts, who knows with Gosman, if he can hang on, you're not getting any younger either. Brios is still a bit fast. It's only a three-year contract. But when you start getting up into the eight, 10-year contracts, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not sure what I'm <laughs> going to be like in eight or 10 years, let alone these <laughs> pro athletes, the superstar athletes. And even if your name is Juan Soto, like they're not going to end well but what's happened in this industry is if you want that player, that's where you have to go. And you yeah. have to hope, even say a George Springer contract, you, you hope you get four or five good years. Um, and with the 10-year contracts, you hope to get five or six, but the back ends are never going to look very good, I don't think. But um, I think the Blue Jays have proven, and not just with the Otani sweepstakes this winter is, they've done it. They've gone out and got guys. They've spent money every winter. So anybody that talks about Rogers or ownership or you know not trying no they're they're spending money and they've done it every winter so that's why I I think they'll keep doing it because that's where they are and um, Juan Soto oh man I know the Otani thing was going on this uh, this off season real quick but I, I was hoping they'd somehow sweep in and get Soto yeah, but at the same time money is money right and as opposed to the prospects so you can keep your players and spend money. And that to me is the preferred route because it sounds like they're ready to spend some money. So to me, go mm-hmm. spend money and get players and don't give up much. You know, a lot of rumors about Manoa and all. There's no way I'd get rid of Manoa. Just mm-hmm. what if he gets back to being Alec Manoa and you got Tiedemann coming and you've got some pitching over the next few years. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, last one then. This is a fun one from Monique. It says, hey, Joe, thanks for coming back on the walk-off. The Blue Jays are getting City Connect jerseys this season. Uh, which existing City Connect jersey is your favorite? Uh, 
And what are you hoping to see with Toronto's? Well, I haven't really gotten into those things. You know, I I heard a lot of people talk about Boston's, the yellow ones, yeah. and yeah. not liking them. And to me, I mean, I kind of thought they're pretty. I mean, did they were they not honoring the yeah the, the, the Boston Ray? Marathon, the marathon, Boston yeah. marathon, right? And I mean, I think that's wonderful. And you know, spending mm-hmm. time in Boston when we get to go there and go down Boylston Street and you see the lines do the pavement. I mean, that, that that stuff's all pretty cool. Um, I saw a couple mock-ups on on Twitter or X and. I think obvious it's got to have the CN tower coming up and out of there for sure. It's got to be something <laughs> like that. I mean, if, if anybody's sitting in the Rogers center, watching a baseball game on a beautiful summer night, uh, we can't quite tell from our perch. We can't quite see it from our perch, but everybody I've talked to that, what a spectacular view when you're inside that stadium. So that to me, iconic. it's a, Oh, yeah. it is. It's just iconic. So to me, that thing straight up on the jersey to me would be everything. I'm not sure you need anything else. Maybe maybe <laughs> a streetcar or two, but that that's the tower. I think that could look pretty cool on on uniform. Okay, very good, Joe. Thanks again. So appreciate you I coming guess. on this show. A very merry Christmas and happy holidays to you, your wife, your family, you. and all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, keep compiling catcher questions until we talk to you next <laughs> off season. <laughs> I love talking. Thanks, guys. Have a good holiday. All right, cheers. Cheers.